You are listening to a Live City Church podcast, and we hope you'll experience Jesus today. We are excited to have you join our extended online church family. If you would like further information or wish to access more content, please connect with us on our Live City Church Facebook page or visit us at livecitychurch.com. Thank you. (laughs) It's an absolute delight to be with you again this morning and um, worship with you. Something's happened with the worship in this place. It's got deeper. It's got challenging. It's got intelligent, more intelligent, because you're one of those few rare churches that sing intelligent songs. I mean, I don't want to really get on that horse, but there are some songs that aren't intelligent that you couldn't really categorize today as worship, because mostly we're singing about ourselves in some of those places, and I can't get into the rhythm of some of those songs, but it doesn't matter. I'm not old-fashioned. I'm just older. <clears throat> Don't ever get old. Yeah. You know, I am a counselor and chaplain for athletes at the Olympics, the Paralympics, the Rugby World Cup, the Commonwealth Games. And um, I meet some cranky old coaches and managers that I want to give a fat slap. Yeah. Now, you know, I grew up in a boxing family. And at least it was an elite boxing family. My wife's heritage is she grew up in a street fighting family. And James, you're not to tell Margarita about this. James, my friend from Northern Ireland back there, came with me this morning. Margarita's son, uh, Margarita's dad, was a street fighter. And he wanted a son as his firstborn. He got a daughter, so he taught her to fight. There are two personalities I fear in life. One is God and the other one's Margarita. And that is a very good respect to have. Because she's a redhead. She's got a volatile personality. I'll tell you what, we've been married 53 years. No, no, 55 years. And she keeps coming up with surprises. Are you going to meet her one day? I'll bring her along here. She's involved somewhere else this morning. But um, she sends her love. And that's what I was taking a photograph about. Just to prove to Margarita, above James's testimony to my wife, that I was actually here. I'm proving that I was here. (laughs) Because, you know, really, some of the places I fly out over the world, she says goodbye to me at Brisbane Airport. And I could be going to Hawaii. And she thinks I'm going to Boston or to London, or something like that. No, I've never done that. Never done that. Because the consequences would be horrendous. Needless to say, we do have a lot of fun. And my oldest daughter, she has an identical personality to my wife. Only thing is, by my wife's admission, my daughter Deborah thinks far more quickly on her feet. She is so smart. She's like a, a featherweight boxer. 
She, she doesn't box, but um, she um, thinks very quickly on her feet. <clears throat> and uh, she said to me one day, Dad, how have you stayed married to mum for so long? <laughs> Knowing that she had the same sort of personality as my wife. Needless to say, when Deborah was a teenager, I had to referee some of those verbal fights. There's a Christian home I'm talking about. And I refused to let the devil invade. And we ended those dis disputations very quickly. <clears throat> However, I said to her in answer to her question, I made a decision and a declaration 53 years ago. It was January 1966. <clears throat> to God and to 200 witnesses and to my wife that she'd be the only one. And I've stuck to it. By God's grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I've stuck to it. And there's no further dispute. So don't ever ask me that question again. She never has. But um, it was a lesson for my kids contemplating their futures. You make a decision before God and you stick to it. It's, it's, called, it's called integrity. And I believe that was um, maybe a prophetic encouragement for somebody here who's going through a shaky time at the moment. You've made a decision, whatever the issue is. And to uphold your integrity... And God's trust in you for the future. Stack to the commitment you made. Now, <clears throat> I want to thank you for your prayers while I've been away. <clears throat> I've been away in West Africa, the nation of Angola, southwestern Africa. It's a country that was at war up to for about 30 years. Unfortunately, the South African forces, and I wasn't part of the South African forces in that era, backed the wrong side. Only the world found out later these were the crooks. You know, it was a tribal dispute. Forty-three tribes, I believe, in that nation. And they were at war with each other with tribal differences, cultural differences. And the two majors were fighting over who was going to rule the country. Funnily enough, the communists backed the good guys. And when the good guys got into power, they kicked the communists out. They used them. <laughs> and there I was coming into a nation and a culture I'd never been to before. Every African culture has its own culture. You folk from where you are know just that. You can't go into South Africa and think, oh, this is like Nigeria. It's totally different, different culture. You can't go into Angola and think that's like South Africa. That's where I came from originally. I grew up with the Zulus. They were the major tribe. And when Nelson Mandela came into power, he was from another tribal group called the Xhosas, X-H-O-S-A, Xhosa. Got a click into it. The Zulus did not want to submit. They said, we can rule ourselves. We don't want the chief of another tribe ruling over us. That nearly fragmented the nation. But it took a friend of mine, much older friend, he passed away in his 90s about 10 years ago, a nuclear physicist. He was the Director of Mineral and Energy Affairs, the Vice Chairman of the Atomic Energy Board. He mediated between Butelezi of the Zulus and Mandela of the Khorsas. And he brought a reconciliation. And that kept the country together. But now South Africa, those of you who've been there, is a very unsafe place. I had to spend five days in South Africa on the way back, just resting up with some friends. I was looking over my shoulder all the time. Looked on people's pinched, fearful faces, wondering where the future was going. In Angola... I had not a problem like that. There was respect. There was help. And I was thinking, gosh, this nation was dominated very harshly by Portugal. The Portuguese are out now. That was what the Civil War was about as well. And they're at peace. 
I got respect. I got help wherever I turned. Even the traffic, they drive on the right-hand side of the road, was chaotic. But there, there was respect on the roads. I couldn't believe it. I was safe in that nation. But I was carrying a memory um, back from um, <clears throat> some ministry that I'd had here before I went. And that was at the men's camp. <laughs> I had such blessing with you guys at that men's camp. I mean, it was remarkable <clears throat> with the, I mean, the, the beautiful unity, the way the Holy Spirit was present there. It was rough. Nobody had shaved. And um, <clears throat> I don't know about showering. I didn't get close enough to smell anybody. Not that's my practice of smelling guys. But <clears throat> it was a great time of fellowship. And I carried this memory all the way to Angola with me. Because I didn't know. I knew very few people there. It was a convention I spoke at, a medical humanitarian aid convention. There were doctors, there were surgeons, there were humanitarian aid directors, plus a lot of local interns, plus missionaries and missionary aviation pilots, about 60 of them, excluding teenagers and kids. And um, although I didn't address the, the kids, they had a separate program. And these people were legends. Many of them had been there, their families had been there three or four generations. A lot of the people there, including the heart surgeons, had been there over 30 years. They had followings of thousands of people who looked up to them. Now, most of them were born again. Some of them were Pentecostal. Some of them were not. But highly respectful people. I felt out of my depth. I felt I was ministering to giants in the land, in God. And I can remember saying, <clears throat> look, you people have such high respect. What can I teach you? Some of them were great, had the great theological disease, uh, degrees. And I said, um, you know, I feel so out of my depth and um, so distant from you guys. You're so high ranking. And a big tubby heart surgeon, I think I was the second oldest person there. The oldest guy was 80 years of age. He'd been there most of his life. Now, I'm nowhere near 80. But um, um, this heart surgeon yelled out from the middle of the audience. He said, cut the BS and get on with your message. <laughs> I'm not going to translate BS to you. <laughs> that settled me in with these people. They were just earthy, down-to-earth people, and um, great time there. In fact, they, they said, we booked up our speakers for the next four years. Would you come back in five years' time? I had to pay for myself to get there because they had no money outside of the country. They looked after me there. We had our ministry at a game reserve, a little game reserve, which was three hours out in the country. It was the rainy season, but I was glad they'd been in drought for four years because those country roads, thick with sand, would have been a swamp to get there. Oh, we saw wild animals along the way, giraffe, kudu, that's big antelope, ostriches, um, a lot of pythons, snakes, and stuff like that, um, and um, springbok. The, the um, antelope. So it was way out in the country. Remarkable. <clears throat> and I told them where I have my home base. And they said, give our love to these people. Now, I'll tell you what. I have a newsletter on the table there, uh, which I'm going to ask you to take after, which gives that report coming from Angola. And um, uh, it, it was a marvelous time. Um, I would love you to take a little news bulletin of the latest news coming from the orphanages and the orphanage of the brain-damaged children that we support. 
in Eastern Europe. You know, many of you know that we support 52 orphanages, 6,000 children. And I call them my favorite little friends, especially in the nation of Ukraine, which has been at war for about three years against the Russian rebel army. And I'm going to say this now in case I forget it during my preaching. <clears throat> it's called When God Stepped Down. I'd love you at least to take this. You'll find them on the table. And by the way, I've got DVDs on that table there. I'm going to mention some titles to you in a moment. <clears throat> um, that, uh, but do, do at least take the paperwork, especially this one, When God Stepped Down. It was the great revival that broke out in the Hebrides Islands, that's northwest coast of Scotland, in 1948, written by a man whom God moved in there after the revival broke out to keep it flowing in the Holy Spirit and not to be fragmented by different dissenting attitudes of different denominational groups. And that revival lasted at least a decade, at least a decade. And it flowed over into Scotland and down into Britain in the 1940s, just after World War II. And, I mean, horrendous to think what would have happened to Britain if that revival had not broken out. This is too long for me to talk on. It runs into five and a half pages. I'd like you to take it home for some really good reading this afternoon. And you'll find that Duncan Campbell, the man that God used to just keep things on track, said, this revival had broken out before I got there. Everyone says, I brought the revival with me. I didn't. There were hundreds who got saved as a result of this revival before Duncan Campbell ever arrived there because he came from another part of Britain. God sent him there to document it, guide it, and make a record of it, just to be a witness. <clears throat> now, on the table back there, I'm just going to mention five titles. Do something great for God. We're always thinking with great admiration of the people who've done great things for God that we've read about or we may have heard about. And, you know, they became great not by doing a great thing, but by doing a little thing that God put his power into and turned the world upside down as a result of a little thing they did guided by the Holy Spirit. So do the little things in obedience to the Holy Spirit with great grace and love and watch how God turns it around. Is there somebody here who has that aspiration? You really want to be remembered as a person of integrity who've done something that's changed history. Who'd like to be that person? I'm not going to embarrass you. I want to give this to you. Who'd like to have this? All right. Go and see James afterwards. You can get one. Pastor Paul, you raised your hand too, didn't you? Yes. Okay. No, I've got more than one back on the table there. I want you guys and you to, because you had your hand up first. You beat everyone by a whole knuckle. <clears throat> okay, just quickly some other titles. Be a passionate witness for Jesus. Be an obedient witness at all times. When you don't feel like it, the Holy Spirit's prompting you. It works better for us than it does for Nike. Just do it. In fact, my granddaughter, who's a bodybuilder, not my granddaughter, my, my granddaughter's mother, my youngest daughter, She's a bodybuilder. She's in the fitness industry. And she's got a, a shirt on, just did it. And on the back, when she turns around, there's a cross that says, I'm, I follow Jesus. <laughs> Running your own unique race. I want to give this to someone who's frustrated. Because you're different from others. You have a different personality. You're not weird. You're not strange. You're just wired differently. We all are. 
And yet if we're forced into a pattern that other people, like your family members who are overprotective, have forced you into, that robs you of your originality. And the finest way is to be yourself and let Jesus be himself in and through you, through the Holy Spirit. Running your own unique race. Remember when David, the man who was going to be king of Israel, was 15 years of age. He was about 15. I worked that out, actually, because he had three brothers in the military, and you had to be 20-plus to be in the military. Funny enough, at 20, you could be in the military, kill and be killed. But in ancient Israel, you didn't have a word that was legal contract until you were 30. That's why Jesus began his ministry at 30. That was the law. So David and David, there were eight brothers. There were four others above David. So 19, 18, 17, 16. David was 15. And he was asked to take some cheeseburgers to his brothers and the commander. He did. You read that there. He took cheese and bread to them. <laughs> and he heard this giant yelling abuse and profanity against the God of Israel and the Israelite army. And he said, why don't one of you guys go and take him out? And they were all scared. He said, I'll go and do it. I'll go and do it. 15-year-old. He was a little shorty. And you know what King Saul, backslidden, insecure King Saul did? Put his armor on this little shorty. Saul was about six foot four tall. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. And David clunked around in this army. He said, I can't wear this. I haven't grown into it. I'll do it my way, thanks. Running your own unique race. I want to give that to somebody. Right. Lady back there. <laughs> Brother, would you pass it back to that lady? Right. Okay. And <laughs> another one, fulfilling your destiny. That speaks for itself. Okay. Now, listen. <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning about the subject of revival. <clears throat> And please, God, help me to deliver this to you. It's going to be unlike any other message you've ever heard about revival. Um, first of all, I'm going to tell you what revival is not. <laughs> it is not a rare outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's been poured out already. He's here already. It is not a great get-together to sing God's praises. Now, don't take me wrong. Just stay tuned in. It's not huge mass rallies where thousands of people get saved. Now, I'm involved in that sort of stuff, and I'm not negating it. These are the shadows of revival. In other words, you might be walking down this passageway with a cup of coffee in one hand, a piece of pizza in the other hand, and the sun in the afternoon is casting a shadow before you. And you think, oh, that shadow looks nice. No, you're the thing that looks nice. You're the substance that's casting the shadow. All the things I've mentioned are shadows caused by the substance of revival. And very often people are grasping at shadows, having imitations of those shadows, and thinking we got revival. No. Revival is the substance that causes those, so the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and mass salvations. That you'll read in this document I've given you um, about the Hebrides revival. Duncan Campbell spoke at his first meeting, which was 8 o'clock at night. The church was packed. It wasn't a large church. It was packed. They finished at 11 when people were normally going to bed. No televisions in those days. 
And he walked outside the back of the church to find 400 people jammed in the field, the paddock outside, waiting to get in. And he said, where are you from? We're from all the other villages on the island of, um, uh, well, the town of Barvas in, in that big area. And um, they said, he said, how'd you get here? We were having our meals in different homes and we felt we had to come to this church. Unsaved people. We felt we had to come to this church tonight. And they all met each other on the road. And people would say, a believer would say to a man walking next to him, walking about six deep along this country road up, to the, up the hill to the church. Um, um, are you a believer? No, I'm not. I think that's what I'm going to become at this church. And by the time they got the five miles to the church, eight kilometers to the church, they all walked. Um, most of those 400 people were saved, led to Christ by the believers who are walking with them. You see, the Holy Spirit had moved upon these people. And I'm going to give you some factors that caused that before they ever got to the church. Duncan Campbell said, I actually led very few to the Lord because all the believers who were now revived were leading them to Christ. The conviction of God was upon the Hebrides Islands. But there has to be a cause. There has to be a starting point. Now, a definition of revival. <clears throat> revival is first personal within you and me. And it can start immediately while I'm talking to you or before you leave this place today. That's how it happened to me. And it wasn't something hocus pocus where I was hit by a bolt of lightning and galvanized and fell over and got up changed. It happened within me and it began to work its way out. I think I've told you the incident. <clears throat> the Sunday morning, I wouldn't consider myself having been filled with the Holy Spirit at that stage. I was four months into following the Lord, 1962. <clears throat> it was about the June. And the pastor said at the close of the service, anyone here really want to have a touch of God in your life? All I wanted was power to witness to my colleagues and friends at work and at sport and at university where I was studying in the evenings. I wanted power to witness. I was talking to them about Christ, but nobody was listening. And I wanted to have that power of Holy Spirit conviction to make them listen and receive Christ. It wasn't a personal thing. It was to reach others. And I went and knelt in the front of the church. <clears throat> and two of the deacons came and laid hands on me and started praying loudly over me in tongues. And I told them to shove off. I shouted at them, get out. I can't even think with you shouting in my ears like this. And they got very discouraged. It was one of my first times in that Pentecostal church. I didn't know they made noise like that all the time. <clears throat> so they went off thinking, heathen, will you just leave him to pray? And um, I said, Lord, I just want to be filled with your Holy Spirit this morning. I'd heard people speaking in tongues, and I thought, they must be so intelligent. Different languages spoken in this church, and they're not African languages. <clears throat> and I thought, some of them sound like Chinese dialects, but um, these people weren't Chinese. So I knew it was something different, but I didn't know what it was. And I got a picture in my mind's eye of myself kneeling under a waterfall. Like when I had done runs across country for boxing camps. <clears throat> um, I'd be hot and sweaty and tired. I'd dive into a rock pool, stand under a waterfall and just drink this beautiful crystal clear water. Until it was coming out of my nose. So I knew what it was to be filled physically with thirst quenching. And I got this picture of the Holy Spirit pouring into this empty vessel, just in my mind's eye. And I said, Lord, more, please, more. Fill me, fill me. Not just top me up, but fill me to overflowing. 
Fill me to overflowing so that this splashes onto others. I didn't realize how doctrinally true I was was in in saying that. Well, I got filled with the Holy Spirit that morning. I didn't speak in tongues, but I got that power. Next morning, I came into work. Oh, look, tongues following the follow. I actually woke up one morning speaking in tongues. (laughs) Um, It was just all an overflow. You know, many people are seeking for the manifestations. Focus on the person. Focus on the Holy Spirit. Not on on his manifestation. You get all the manifestations. They are the consequence. John Lewis and I had Pastor John Lewis, once state superintendent, I think he was, of the Assemblies of God, had this altercation. I said, John, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are a consequence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Get filled with the Holy Spirit, the gifts will happen. But I don't, I've lost judging people who don't know about them. They get filled with the Holy Spirit and they're prophesying and they don't know it, but they've never spoken in tongues. Because remember on Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they spoke with other tongues and prophesied. Presbyterians and Methodists began to prophesy before speaking in tongues. And then I told them about tongues and they began to speak in tongues. They just didn't know about it. Just a lack of knowledge. However, there I was, waltzed into work um, about 15 minutes before starting time. And all the staff were sitting around the office table <clears throat> joking about their weekends. And I just came in unobtrusively and sat down, put my briefcase on the floor. About 15 minutes before the buzzer went and we went out to work, I was an auditor. And the guy sitting next to me said, hey, Dave, you've had a wonderful weekend. You look great. I mean, they'd been talking about parties, horse races, gambling, uh, casinos and stuff like that. And I, I said, well, yes, actually, I got a great touch from God in church yesterday morning. And the guy sitting next to him, that was Christopher, the guy who asked me. Larry was sitting next to him and said, um, what was that, Dave? I repeated it. The secretary, Denise, sitting next to him said, what was that? And suddenly, 15 people sitting around this big coffee table were listening to me. And it must have been two and a half minutes maximum. I just shared how beautiful Jesus was. They were engaged. They were listening. That was the power I got filled with yesterday. Well, I didn't give an altar call because the buzzer went and we had to go out. And it wasn't appropriate. Over the next four years, I worked in that accountant's office. I led most of those people to Christ. They came to me. I mean, they were laughing at me before that, trying to tell them about Jesus. They treated me like a walking circus. You see, I'd got revival, seeking the person, not any manifestation, seeking the person the day before. And I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to lose it. And I said to those folk, why did you come to me when you hit the wall, when you had broken pieces to put together? Because you laughed at me. You treated me with scorn before that. They said, do you remember that morning you came in, you sat down unobtrusively, you were shining. I wasn't aware. I felt different on the inside, but I wasn't aware my appearance had changed. They said, you were shining, and we listened to you, and what you said got through. It was the first time the seeds started bearing fruit. So I'm talking about personal experience here, not just something I've read. I didn't know it was called revival. (laughs) I just received it and did it. (laughs) And as it says, it's the constant experience of the simplest. I don't mean stupid. I mean uncomplicated. Christians who will just walk in the light with Jesus because he is the light but walking in the light means that light exposes stuff that God doesn't like in your life and very often some believers will shut that down out of embarrassment don't do that God's not out to embarrass you he's not out to embarrass you 
He wants to clean you out and heal you. And many people say, I want to be on fire for Jesus. You know, one thing that fire does, burns up rubbish. <laughs> Another thing that fire does, it gives light to those who can come out of the darkness and follow where that light's going. They're actually following Jesus in you. And the third thing it does, it gives warmth. That's why people want to stay with you. They've come out of the cold. Don't chase them away. Don't be insecure. They don't want anything from you. They just want that warmth and that light. And if you're following Jesus, they'll follow him with you. So don't chase people away out of an insecurity thinking they want something from you you haven't got. You've got something that they want. Share it with them. Now, <clears throat> this means <clears throat> a new sensitive, new sensitivity of calling things by their rightful name sin, when it is sin. Seeing sin in God's light, like um, pride, hardness of heart, doubt, fear, self-pity. Oh, I feel so sorry for myself. Oh, come on. Because people have intimidated me. Look, forgive those idiots. Get yourself restored in Christ and move on. And you'll find that those people you've forgiven, you've sifted them out of your domain into God's domain by forgiving them, and God deals with them. Especially if your family are against you and you've got to live with your family. And there's a resistance between you and your family, and it comes from you. Because you don't want to get them, let them too close. They might hurt you and abuse you. Forgive them. Put them in God's hands. And I'll tell you what, when you do grow up and come to leave home, <laughs> they'll miss you. <laughs> That's what my folks said about me. <clears throat> when I left home to get married, we miss you so much. Because years before, I'd forgiven them for I, the way that they were persecuting me. Literally. I think I mentioned to you my dad was the South African light heavyweight boxing champion. <clears throat> he beat me up three times when I was 19 to stop me following Christ. I couldn't go to work in a university for four days. My face was so cut and swollen. And the family doctor said to my dad, Bernie, don't touch your son again. What you're doing is illegal. He could sue you for everything you've got. Now, when I overheard that, it gave me a little bit of confidence, but I didn't pursue it because nobody wins. Nobody wins when you do that. If I'd done that, I would have lost my parents. I forgave my dad. I put him in God's hands, and within a month, he got saved. Wow. All by himself. <clears throat> and I tell you, I was feeling sorry for myself. Uh, God, I'm your child. I don't deserve being beaten up. I actually shaved without using a mirror because I didn't like looking. <laughs> in fact, when I went back to work, the guy, Christopher, who was sitting next to me that day, when I came bouncing in in the Holy Spirit, he said to me, do your girlfriend do that? I said, Chris, I don't have a girlfriend. You know that. I only met Margarita two years later. Uh, <clears throat> and when I heard about her left hook, I thought I'm not going to get too close to that left hook. However, <clears throat> I said, no, it wasn't my girlfriend. It was my dad. What? And that just share, I said, I'm not, don't hold it against him. But my dad beat me up because I decided to follow Christ. He was Catholic. He was an avid churchgoer. He said, I wonder if I'll ever get it beaten up for going to church. I said, you might if you decide to follow Jesus, because there are people who object to that. But I don't wish it on you. Actually, he didn't ever get into trouble. Now, very often, we excuse these things as just human reaction. Look, call it what it is, sin, and bring it before God and ask for his forgiveness. <clears throat> if this means a readiness to, uh, oh, to, to confess at the feet of him, was ready to be broken for us. 
a brokenness, a humbleness before God. Lord, I want to surrender to you and I want my stubborn will broken and bent to your will. And confess whatever's standing in your way. Just between you and God. <clears throat> you see, the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse excuses. It cleanses sin. Confessed as sin. So, revival is the daily experience of a soul that's just filled with Jesus and running over. I mean, how less complicated can you get? The daily experience of a soul that is just filled with Jesus and running over. But now that's what was happening when you read these notes on the Hebrides revival. The believers were just filled with Jesus and flowing over. They were not Pentecostals at that time. As the revival moved on, they got filled with the Holy Spirit in their sincerity and the depth of their earnestness to be filled with more of God. The gifts began to operate. They got filled with the Holy Spirit without having great, what we call, Holy Spirit meetings. They just got filled with the Holy Spirit in their homes, walking to church with groups of people. <laughs> Did God do this to this nation? <laughs> now, there is a key, a key to unlock the door of revival. <clears throat> This key unlocks the door to the salvation of multitudes, unlocks the door to true Pentecost. Not just flash in the pan manifestations. And this key is actually not to have great preachers around. Now, don't get me wrong. God can use all these factors. It's not having super advertising to draw people in. Although, anointed advertising works. It's not having great concert-style worship meetings. Sometimes those can be so exhausting. I'd rather come here for worship. <laughs> God can use all these things in the right context. But the key is found in this classic verse of Scripture. Hear me on this, please. Second Chronicles 7.14. A number of true factors here. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. <clears throat> Look at the factors. God's people. Unsaved do not need revival. They need new life. They're old creations. They need to become new creations. We who have life need to be revived. And it's, it's like um, <clears throat> those paddles they put on you what, defibrillators on someone who once had life and is passing away to revive their heart. May the Holy Spirit put those defibrillators on us today. And uh, pray. I mean, seriously. Instead of just repetitious prayers, I get <clears throat> into a very comfortable position, especially when I'm feeling very broken and lonely and um, unfamiliar in a set of circumstances I should know how to handle. Because I'm like I was in Angola. It's been decades before I felt like that. And um, I just put my face on the floor and I found it a very, uh, very comfortable position under God's almighty hand. And saying, God, I just don't know what to say. I'm just feeling so crushed and broken here. Look, I, I wasn't feeling too well physically <clears throat> because I had to have 10 different vaccinations within three weeks, including a series of 28 days of malaria tablets. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been allowed into that country, and I certainly wouldn't have been allowed back into come, come back into Australia. 
they would have put me in two months quarantine in Adelaide. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> just have a glass of water. <clears throat> and I ask you to get that little picture in your mind's eye. When you uh, <clears throat> pray, whether you sit or kneel, the material, just bowed under God's mighty hand. A very comfortable position to be in. And just open your heart to him. He knows what's there. Don't try and disguise anything and excuse, because the blood of Jesus does not cleanse excuses. Where did I get all this stuff? It was happening to me, but it came into an order when I read this book. The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. I highly recommend this book. It's been modified a little bit. It used to have a red cover with a cross, wooden cross on it, with blood on it. And you see, I didn't have any prejudices to get in the way. I just read this book and I thought, gosh, I'm going through that. It helped me to continue it. I highly recommend this book. Kurong have it. Or you can get it online from Amazon. And um, then... Part of the notes that I've given you are this Hebrides revival in 1948 by Duncan Campbell. <clears throat> now, I'm going to take you back a little while. You older guys will remember this. Maybe some of you younger guys have heard music from this era about the artists I'm going to show you, where, <clears throat> well, it affected not just one nation, but many nations around the world. It was called the Jesus Revolution or the Jesus Movement in California. It started in the 1970s, and there were a number of people who were involved in this, great leaders. They were actually saved and reformed drug addicts, alcoholics, and demon-possessed people. Some of them were very intelligent and were leaning highly into communism. And let me say, at this stage, it was only found out later on by David Wilkerson about 10 years after these events, in doing research, that most of the universities, the high schools, training institutions across the United States had been infiltrated by communist professors, Russian and Chinese trained, who had come in to change the nation back to communism. And that was on the brink of causing the student movement to rebel against the government and come into communism. And uh, God stopped it. He stopped it dead in his tracks by raising these people up. It was remarkable <clears throat> in the fact that the Holy Spirit dropped on the university campuses. And the communes, like, like he did in 1948 in the Hebrides revival, and these people came under conviction. And God raised up a totally new group of um, pe people of worship. There was a music group, Pastor Paul, you might remember them, Love Song. That was led by a guy by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. There were films that came out of that because in all of their impromptu meetings, there were big and small numbers. There were people with video cams walking around, taking film of this. And they were putting it into a sequence. They formed a, a, a film industry as a result of this. And we got those films into South Africa. This music group, Love Song, led by Lonnie Frisbee, were remarkable. They were smelly hairy, <clears throat> and um, I mean, when you look at those pictures, um, but such a sweet presence of Christ flowed out of these people. <clears throat> there was another guy called Larry Norman. 
he was also a rebel. He was a protester, especially against the Vietnam War. <clears throat> Larry came to South Africa, and I had the privilege of driving him around and working with him for four months. Four months. I'll tell you, you catch something over those four months. Unfortunately, his hosts knew, should have known better. They were friends of mine. That's how I got dobbed in to drive him around. <clears throat> um, took him to straight-laced Pentecostal churches. Dutch-speaking Afrikaans churches that couldn't handle Larry Norman. And they almost ran him out of the country. Now, what they should have done was this. After one of those discouraging meetings way out in the country, we drove him back into the city of Johannesburg. And the um, organizers <clears throat> said, come on, we know there is a nightclub open. It's just about to close. We get, we get a little meal and get some refreshment. We hadn't eaten all day. We hadn't drunk very much either. And I was longing for a nice herbal tea or something. We walked into this nightclub, and the music group had just had a break from the gig they were putting on. About 100 people in the place. And I mean weirdos, really weirdos. The place smelt of various light drugs that were being peddled in those days. But there was nobody playing. So Larry walked up to the owner, introduced himself, and said, can I use my guitar and sing a song? He said, sure. Well, Larry sat with his legs over the front of the platform and just began to sing, Jesus was an outlaw. And then he went on to, why should the devil have all the good music? Remember those songs? And the crowd, all 100 people stopped what they were doing, put their drinks down and came and stood in front of me with open mouths like little kids. Larry gave an altar call and everyone in the place got saved. And I said to the organizers, that's where you should have taken Larry Norman, not to the churches, should have taken him to all the nightclubs around the nations. He was a soul winner. Now, he was the guy who actually created the one-way sign. And um, what a privilege working with this guy. And there was another one by the name of Keith Green. He followed in the wake of these guys. His memory is still very sharp. And then Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapels. He was the man God brought in to harness all that without causing a denomination. He grew these, grew these guys into little chapel services that grew rapidly. It, the, the, uh, Christian chapels are right throughout the world. Calvary Chapels are right throughout the world today, reaching this type of person. Now, this is what I'm going to finish with, because <clears throat> this is a movement that started in February 1970. 3rd of February 1970. It was a cold Tuesday morning. Backtrack about three months. The, um, one of the deans of the faculty had been praying with about 30 students out of 400 students. And this wasn't a theological seminary. It was a... Um, a technical college where they learned trades. The seminary it was Methodist run. The seminary it was across the road. And they were jealous that God touched the technical college first. These 30 students, under the mentoring of this dean, were making right with God. They felt uncomfortable. Some of the guys had been womanizing excessively. Most of them were cheating on their studies and their grades. And one particular person, it was a beautiful young lady who went on to become a Miss America, was an inveterate liar. She couldn't stop lying. And they began to confess their sins within this group to God and make right with him. The dean taught them how to pray, how to read the scriptures and be obedient to God's word. And these kids started getting revived. Just 30, just 30. 
And then the Tuesday morning, 400 students gathered in the chapel for the chapel hour. And the dean got up and he said, I don't feel led to speak to you this morning. I want to get some of my 30 students in my deanery faculty to come and um, talk to you, to share their testimonies. And each one of these kids got up and spoke for about two minutes, talking about confessing the wrongs in their lives. And they were specific about the wrong things they were doing. It must have been embarrassing. And they made right with God and then left the platform one after the other, leaving the microphone to go down to the audience to apologize to people that they'd hurt and injured in the audience. The dean got up when the bell went for the end of the chapel hour and said, folks, we're canceling classes today. Anyone wants to make right with God, come to the front. A swarm of people from the audience ran to the front, four deep. I stood in that place 11 years later and walked into the presence of God in Wilmore, Kentucky, just south of Louisville, Kentucky, where KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, started. And uh, that was that morning, and that was the people who were receiving the word from those students. Then they began to flood forward to the front and then somebody just burst out into impromptu song. And um, there, there was the dean who had started off this movement. Just one man, a loner, in that situation. And um, at 10 o'clock that evening, the place was full with about 1,200 people. Remember, the building only seated by 500. At 4 o'clock in the morning... There were still 200 people there. People just went home to get refreshed and come back. It got onto the television, and the television called and said, can we come in? They said, yes, but no floodlights, and you don't distract anything. They filmed it. That meeting went on nonstop eight and a half days. People got saved by students turning to a guy sitting next to him said, by the way, you're new here. Are you saved? No, I'm not. I saw this on TV and I came to see what was going on. Student led him to Christ. In the months that followed, students, most of those students went to their various deans and said, we must take this out to other campuses. They went across the state in these choreographed groups and they didn't preach, they just got up and shared what happened to them and the Holy Spirit dropped in those places. Meetings lasted four and five days. And David Wilkerson did the research. It moved from the east across to the west and linked up with the Jesus movement in California. See, God knew what the communists were trying to do to take over the country. And he stepped in and revived his church and stopped it dead in its tracks and killed it at that point in time. Now, I'm offering this to you to consider this very seriously. And I've gone a little bit over time and I apologize for that. But I want you to follow this through from this meeting into your home life. And maybe instead of if you want to watch the cricket, just see what's happening with the cricket in England and um, turn the TV off because it'll stay the same through the afternoon. And um, just focus on this. Just spend an unrushed time with God. It doesn't have to be a lengthy period. Just doing these things today. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. I find I've got to say that, Lord, I humble myself. My arrogant spirit, I humble it before you under your almighty hand. 
and pray and seek his face and turn from wicked ways, things that are wrong. Watch what God will do in healing you, filling you up and overflowing. Now just close your eyes a moment, please. <clears throat> There's some faces in this audience today that I don't know. And I just want to pray a prayer as I close. I'm going to incorporate a summing up of the results of this message. But I want to ask the guests here this morning, do you have a relationship with Jesus? If you died today, if you died today, are you positive you're going to heaven? If you're not, I beg you, please, pray this prayer with me as I lead you right now. Pray it with me from where you're seated. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I need you as my Lord and Savior. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. I'm sorry I've neglected you. But that stops today. I'm turning around. I'm coming to you, Jesus. Come into my heart. Please forgive my sin. Wash me clean with your precious blood. And give me your gift of everlasting life. I thank you, Lord Jesus. And I put my life and my future in your hands. Help me to serve you. And to be a revived child of God. Now the rest of you, would you mind standing? Just standing to your feet. Just everyone stand to your feet. I want you to reach out and hold hands with each other. Just hold hands with each other. And I'm going to pray probably a 15-second prayer. And I'm asking you to pray it with me. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I want your best. So I'm giving you my all. Please forgive my sin. And revive me in such a way that Jesus will pour out of me the Holy Spirit will bring God's conviction on people close to me and they'll want to come to know Christ and use me to overflow to others every day from this moment on. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining Life City Church and we hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. If this ministry has made an impact on your life, We'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line and share your story at thanks at livecitychurch.com or email us your prayer needs at prayer at livecitychurch.com. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your story. If you love the ministry of Live City Church, you can make a financial gift to help us spread the good news of Jesus by going to livecitychurch.com and clicking the giving tab. We hope today's message has spoken into your life and look forward to your next visit.